Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. I want to shout out to the National Cooperative Bank and Chuck Snyder. They have purchased equipment so that we can go on the road and do live interviews on the road. And this morning, Mr. Malik Yakini is our guest. He's a co-founder and the executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Bernie? I'm doing just wonderfully well. Thank Good. You. Thanks for taking the time for this interview. It's a pleasure. I understand this community food security network, you have a farm, an urban farm, and you're looking to open up a food cooperative. That's correct. The Detroit Black Community Food Security Network operates the largest farm in Detroit, which is called D-Town Farm. And at the farm, we grow more than 37 different fruits and vegetables, and we're training people in the city of Detroit how to do urban agriculture. And, uh, we, you know, we think it's important for people in general to break their dependence on corporations and people who are just driven by money and who don't really have our best interests at heart. We think that's important in general, but we think it's particularly important for people of African-American descent in a system that is overwhelmingly against our progress that we band together for self-help projects such as this farm that we're operating. And the Detroit People's Food Co-op that we're spearheading is really an extension of, of that work that we've been doing for the last several years. How long have you been doing this? Our organization started in 2006. 12 years. Yeah, so we've been doing it as an organization for 12 years. We've had three locations in that time. Uh, we've been at our current location for the last 10 years. And so we've been pretty stable in that one place for 10 years. So I had a chance to go by there this morning. I understand it's seven acres. I saw some kale and onions and garlic. And I I really wanted to go and pick some of that kale and eat it. It looked real good. <laughs> yeah, I had some for dinner last night. It's great. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we have we have several things planted. Right. So right now, as you mentioned, we have kale. Two types of kale. We have onions. We have collard greens. Two types of cabbage. We have scallions. We've got leeks. We've got okra growing. We've got chard. Uh, we just planted green beans yesterday and uh, a, a few other things. We have some salad mix still that's kind of at the end of the growing season for that. We have some spinach, some arugula. So, we, you know, we're growing several things. We grow seasonally. Okay. You know, some things do better in the spring. Some things do better in the, the warmer months. So when do you start planting? Well, you know, Michigan is kind of strange because you have to really monitor the weather. So typically we can start planting outside in April. This year we weren't able to do it until May okay. uh, because we had cold weather right up until May or so. Uh, so anytime the possibility of the weather dropping below 30 degrees exists, 
then it's usually not a good look for most plants. Some plants can survive freezing temperatures, but most don't do very well. But we have hoop houses also, which are sometimes called uh, passive solar greenhouses. They're constructed with hoops, and they have plastic stretched over them, and they capture the radiant heat from the sun. And so we're able to plant in the hoop houses earlier than we can plant outside. So we started planting in the hoop houses in March of this year. Well, I saw them. I saw two, and I was told there were three. I just thought they were greenhouses. Well, typically a greenhouse is a permanent structure that's made of glass. And so hoop house is a, a, a type of low-tech greenhouse, but it's, it's fairly easily deconstructed. And instead of the expense of the glass, it has a plastic sheeting like people might use to cover their windows during the winter. Okay. Farm boy, where are you from? I'm from Detroit. I'm from the west side of Detroit. In fact, uh, we're sitting in our office right now as we're doing this interview on the northwest side of Detroit, and I grew up about two miles from where we're sitting right now, so I have a real vested interest in in this community. And I've been in the same house, actually, since 1960, which is almost unheard of, so it's given me a kind of unique perspective as I've watched how the neighborhood has evolved or devolved, as the case may be. Yeah, I cannot tell you how many houses I've lived in since 1960 or states for that matter. Okay. I lived in Detroit in 1966 for about nine months, and when I used to walk the neighborhoods, there were houses I would kill for back then that all boarded up now. It, that's what's strange and sad to me. Yeah, Detroit has, has had a real tough time um, for multiple reasons. One of the reasons being the tremendous depopulation of the city that was largely a result of racism. And that depopulation started in the 1950s, but really accelerated after the 1967 rebellion. In fact, in the six months following the rebellion in Detroit that started in July 1967, about 80,000 people left Detroit between July and December. The following year, 1968, about 70,000 people left. In 1969, about 60,000 people left. So just so you can see the kind of magnitude of the depopulation. And so what happens, of course, when you have tens of thousands of people leaving a place, the tax base is diminished. And so the city had the unenviable task uh, by 1972 when Coleman Young, the first black mayor, was elected. They had the unenviable task of being able to, of having to maintain a city infrastructure that was the same size, but with a tax base that was much smaller than it had been in the past. Uh, also, just to put things in perspective, in 1950, Detroit had 1.9 million people, according to the census. And in 2010, the census says there were 713,000 people in Detroit, just to give you an idea of the degree to which the population has decreased. And so all of those people who left the city took their tax money with them, and the city, of course, operates on those tax revenues. And so city services have suffered, which has in turn caused more people to leave. And, and so what we've seen in the last 20 years is many uh, middle-class blacks who are able to leave the city are doing the same thing because they're searching for better city services, better education, and things of that nature. 1.9 <clears throat> million to 700,000? Yes, sir. 1.2 million people left? Yes, sir. And that range was 1950 to? To 2010. 2010, 60 years, yes. 1.2 million people gone. Well, I can understand why I see these blighted buildings, why it's so blighted now. It is either blighted buildings or lots that are empty, uh, which they, buildings have been torn down. Mm -hmm. 
So, and, and that's, to be fair, that's one factor. So the predatory lending and the mortgage crisis of the, uh, the late uh, 2000s, 2007, 2008 or so, that also had a devastating impact on Detroit. The fact that there are so many absentee landlords uh, and people renting also has, a, has had a devastating impact on Detroit. And, of course, the general decline in the economy, both in the United States and in Detroit in particular, has had a devastating impact. Currently, about 40% of Detroiters live below the federal poverty line. So Detroit was in some ways a one-horse town. You mentioned to me in our conversation earlier that you worked in the Ford plant uh, in Dearborn, as many black folks in the city of Detroit did, either the Ford plant, the Chrysler plant, or the various General Motors plants. And so at one time in the 1960s, you could drop out of high school, really, and go to the factory and get a job and achieve a middle-class lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so many people did that. Uh, In fact, my younger brother who lived in Lansing but had a, you know, they had a similar economy. He dropped out of high school, went to work for Oldsmobile, and he was making more money in Oldsmobile than I was making as a teacher in Detroit Public Schools, having graduated with a four-year degree from a state college. But the decline of the U.S. auto industry's dominance in the world market affected Detroit tremendously. You know, at one point, again, the big three, Chrysler, GM, Ford, were the only game in town, but then... You started having uh, Volkswagen. You had uh, various Japanese automakers who were producing cars that were, in some cases, more efficient and that were cheaper, and they started getting part of that market share. And so the decline of the U.S. auto industry had a had a very devastating impact on Detroit's economy as well. I always started <clears throat> also that the automobile manufacturers took their jobs overseas or down to Mexico or something. That's true, too. So so there's multiple factors, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, because of the unions in the U.S. and the, the demands that unions were able to put forward to auto manufacturers for higher jobs, safer working conditions, which was an expense for for the companies, they often moved their operations to, to places outside the United States. So you were teaching, your brother was in the factory, and I, as I told you earlier, I, I worked in the factory, and that that work was so boring and tedious. The, the money was excellent. And I worked from 3, I was on a 3 to 11 shift, but more often than not, I didn't get off to 1 or 2, got home, went to sleep, and got went back to work. Mm-hmm. Didn't have me where to spend it. And I ended up spending it on Sunday. The only thing that was open was clothing stores. Okay. I, I don't think it was the only thing open, but they were open. It was the most expensive clothing store. Mm-hmm. And they got the money. Yeah. So I, I, I went back to school. I knew I was not going to work that way. And so I ended up getting a four-year degree and then a couple master's degrees mm-hmm. on top of it. Mm-hmm. That, that experience helped me a lot, though. I did not want to be in that factory. So how did you go from teaching school to being a farmer from Detroit? Ur- you're urban boy. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's a long story. I'll try to condense it. So I taught in Detroit public schools for about 10 years from 1979 to 1989. Teaching what? Uh, I taught for a few years adult basic education, uh-huh. teaching adults who were going back to get their GED, but whose reading level was not yet high enough to actually get in G- GED classes. Okay. So I was teaching adults who were reading at a third or fourth grade level, also teaching them math, trying to get their basic skills up to the level where they could enroll in GED classes to be prepared to take the test. But I also taught uh, middle school for two or three years, and I basically taught social studies uh, while I was teaching middle school. 
And then in 1989, I was co-founder of a school. I left the Detroit public school system and co-founded a school called Insorama Institute, which was an African-centered school. We were very concerned about the lack of representation of people of African descent in the curriculum in a city that is predominantly African-American. And we had the firm belief that black children need to be connected to their own historical and cultural continuum to function in the world in a healthy way. And so we started a school to do that, and I ran that school as principal for about 22 years from 1989 until the time I resigned in 2011. And at the school in 1999, we started doing pretty serious gardening with the children. Food had been always uh, part of the culture of the school. We were concerned about health primarily. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, from the very beginning, we banned soda pop from the school. We banned candy, gum. Uh, we had certain regulations, like if parents wanted to do a birthday party in the class, they had to bring cakes that were made in a more healthy manner and, and be able to provide, you know, ice cream for the students who, who were lactose intolerant or who were vegetarian or vegan. And so that kind of thinking about healthy eating was always part of the school culture. But in 1980, 1999, when we started doing serious gardening with the children, we developed a food security curriculum where we prescribed the type of things that should be taught at each grade level so that students had a more comprehensive understanding about the food system. Phenomenal. And, and so the short story is that the work that we were doing at that school introduced me to the larger food movement. I was aware of food on a personal level because I had been a vegetarian myself since 1975 and was concerned about health. But I didn't know there was this movement of people throughout the country and throughout the world trying to make sure that we had a more just and equitable food system. This is Bernard Oaks, and I'm in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm with Malik, and we're talking about food security, going from being a teacher in the Detroit public schools and to become a vegetarian and really get into th this food. And they created a company called Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, an organization. Malik, you were talking about food, and I, I did interview a gentleman by the name of Steve Alves. He produced a... Uh, uh, documentary called Food for Change. Do you know about that? Yes, I do. Uh, in fact, we showed that movie shortly after it came out. It's part of our membership kickoff drive. We showed it at the African American Museum here in the city of Detroit. And it's a, it's a rather long documentary, but it's a pretty comprehensive look at the food co-op movement in the United States. There, you know, I did have some critique of it that I offered to uh, to Steve, which is that I don't think it represented in as robust a way as possible the efforts uh, that African Americans have engaged in uh, as part of the part of the co-op movement. But nevertheless, the movie was uh, really good and will probably be showing again sometime soon. Yeah, I've also we've shown it a couple times, and uh, I really really like it. I, it, it. It's right. It's long, but it's very detailed. So you you've been growing food now for. 
12 years. As an organization. I've been doing it longer than that, but the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has been doing it for 12 years. And the farm that you have right now is 10 years. Now you want to go and start a food Mm co-op. So why? So from our inception in 2006, supporting existing co-ops and starting a new co-op was always one of our goals. And so this isn't something we just kind of fell into and in fact, many of us have been involved in cooperative movements, cooperative efforts for decades in and around the city of Detroit. So the, the why, I guess I can answer in a couple of ways. One is that our organization thinks that capitalism is a pretty despicable economic system, that there are built-in inequalities in capitalism, that one of the hallmarks of capitalism is this idea of private ownership of land, and when you combine the idea of private ownership of land with the racialized society in which people who have white skin get unearned privilege, then what we see is the concentration of wealth and power in the hands usually of wealthy white men. Man, you say that so nicely. You, that was beautiful. That was absolutely beautiful. Racism and bigotry, you just put a whole new nice twist. You, you, like you know, it. most of my life I've talked to majority black audiences and since doing this food work, I'm now often speaking to white audiences. And so when I first started talking to white audiences, they would be terrified, frankly. And so I guess I've learned to frame things in a way that is direct but perhaps doesn't terrify people as much. But it was also beautiful. I want to go back and listen to that and make sure I get it. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so within the context of a capitalist system, we think the best opportunity – the people who are oppressed and marginalized have to galvanize their collective economic power is through cooperatives. In fact, it's really the only opportunity that we have to collectively uplift our communities on an economic level. And so we're very committed to co-ops. You know, many people in black communities push by black campaigns, which we're in favor of as a way of circulating money within black communities. But still, typically those by black campaigns are centered around individually owned businesses, sole proprietorships or LLCs or what have you. And so the owners of that business may do well as a result of getting more community support, but there's no guarantee that the community, the larger community, will benefit as a result of supporting those individually owned black businesses. But the cooperative movement provides an opportunity for us to have collective upliftment. And so that's the basic reason that we're uh, we're dedicated to it. But we think also it's extremely important that any community that wants to exhibit self-determination begins to control its sources of food. And so uh, having food co-ops, be they producer co-ops or growers co-ops or consumer co-ops, we think are extremely important in terms of exerting greater control over the food that comes into our communities. For those of you that may not have listened before, let me, Brother Malik has just talked about three different types of co-ops. There are basically four types of co-ops, and it depends on who owns and controls the business. If the business is owned and controlled by the people that work in that business, it's called a worker cooperative. The employees own it, worker cooperative. If it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, then it's called a consumer cooperative. And consumer cooperatives are credit unions and housing co-ops, Food co-ops can be either a consumer cooperative or it could be a worker cooperative or, in some cases, a hybrid of both. So you have different ways of owning and controlling. And then you would have those co-ops that 
come together to buy their seeds and fertilizer or their materials or their warehouse space, and it's called a purchasing co-op. And those co-ops, farmers use them, artists use them, uh, different organizations uh, come together, different groups of people come together so they can buy things collectively. And in the South, uh, Brother Malik, there's a group called the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and uh, they had to come together because when they went out to vote and registered to vote in the 60s, the whites wouldn't sell them gas. So they had to form a co-op to, and buy a truck to go across state line to get their gas. So they created a, a, a purchasing cooperative. And then on the other side, for most farmers, it's a marketing cooperative. So once you get the food, produce the food, then you have a, a company or so that would market your products to get your products to more uh, markets and hopefully at a better price. So those are your four basics, a worker cooperative, consumer cooperative, a purchasing cooperative, or a marketing cooperative. And so you mentioned some of them, so I just want to make sure everybody out there knows what, what, which one you are. Mm-hmm. And so for your food co-op, is it going to be a, a worker cooperative? It's going to be consumer? a consumer co-op. Mm-hmm. So we looked at the kind of hybrid model. We couldn't find too many of them, first of all, the hybrid model where it's right. a consumer co-op but also a worker-owned co-op. And so really to simplify things, we decided just to go as a consumer co-op. So that means the people that come in and buy, the clients, the customer, they will own the business. Yes. Okay. And what makes the co-op so great is they own the business so they have a say-so in what goes on in that business. Exactly. How does that work? Well, you know, of course, you can't have thousands of people managing the day-to-day affairs of any business but the, the way co-ops work and the way the Detroit People's Food Co-op will work is that the member owners will elect a board of directors, and that board of directors sets the broad policy for the business, including uh, hiring the general manager, who's really the key person. And in our case, the general manager will hire the rest of the staff. So through the member owners uh, voting for members of the board of directors or themselves running for board of directors, uh, they set the the kind of policy framework that then the general manager uh, operates within to make day-to-day decisions on behalf of the store. Yeah, that's the way it, it normally works, is that board of directors is so, so important. But, but the members also can have to create some of the policies, particularly what happens if there's profit. Yes, yes. So um, in our case, the member owners will have the opportunity uh, each year to make a decision, each year that the store is profitable, will have the opportunity to make a decision either to divide uh, those profits among themselves uh, within the limits provided by Michigan Co-op law, or they can decide to plow those profits back into the co-op itself, or they can decide to donate them to a local nonprofit organization, or they can decide on some combination of those three things. And so... Uh, We always use the term uh, member owner because we want people to be clear that this is not like going to Sam's Club where you get a membership card and you're able to shop there, but you have no say-so in what happens at the store. So member owners are actually owners of the business, and this is the thing that really um, kind of separates co-ops from other businesses. All right, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be right back. And uh, I want to go into the different uh, principles, cooperative principles, because you've already mentioned one or two of them. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. I'm here in Detroit with Mr. Malik Yakini. I like that name, sir. I like you, too. <laughs> so in a food co-op, I know that money, well, that's any co-op. The, the money stays in the community, okay? And that's one of the differences with the capitalist. In a capitalist society... First, it's profit, profit, profit is the only thing they're concerned about. And the owner, the shareholder, may live in a different city or a different country, and the money leaves the community. So that, that's one of the reasons you like to cooperate with Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to give you a little bit of my background, even aside from the teaching that I told you about, I've been a pretty committed member of the black freedom movement, or however you want to term that, for a number of decades and so, you know, myself and many others have been concerned about how we stop the bleeding that we see of dollars leaving black communities, or in some cases, even when we're spending money in our own community, because we often, we most often don't own the businesses in our community, the money is still being extracted. And so similarly to a colonialism, where you have a mother country that comes in and colonizes the country and sees that colony as a source of of resources, but also as a place to dump cheap goods. So our communities become similar to domestic colonies where people see it as a wealth extraction point and a, a point to, again, sell, you know, sell cheap goods. And so we're concerned about how we stem that tide. So that, even before I knew anything about cooperatives, myself and many other people have been concerned about this bleeding of the dollars from black communities. And so we're trying to stop that and circulate that money so that African-American communities have the wherewithal to stand on our own two feet to fund the institutions that we need to to make the many changes that we have in our communities. Yeah, when I first took economics, I didn't understand this multiplier effect, that the money would stay in the community and keep being used five, six, seven, eight times. But in the black community, maybe once. Maybe. And it would be gone. It's gone. That's right. Okay. So some, um, some other communities you have. Folks that might go, they might go to the bakery and buy something, and then the owner of the bakery might go to the dry cleaners down the street and spend that, and the person at the dry cleaners goes to the meat market. And so, as you said, the money circulates within that community. And so many other groups practice what some people call group economics, that they understand that collectively uh, galvanizing their purchasing power gives them uh, power and, and a way to capture their wealth. Uh, for various reasons, including the fact that we live in a society that has disconnected us from our history and culture, uh, we often don't function as a group. We function as individuals and in a system that, um, that is fairly competitive, a group which is not organized and doesn't see itself functioning as a, as a unit is victimized. And so we see cooperatives as a way of stemming that tide and building this collective economic power. The reason I fell in love with co-ops is I got my MBA. I never heard about co-op. I only started managing housing costs. And I see everyday people making excellent business decisions. And they got to keep the money. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know where any place else you do it. Yeah. So 
No, 57% of every dollar that's made in 2008 goes to the 1%. Wow. Okay. It's obscene. So the 99% of us, we get, we get 43%. Mm-hmm. And three people in the U.S. owns more assets than the lower 50%. Mm-hmm. And guess who's in that bottom 50 Us. Us. Yes. People yeah. of color. Yeah. Now, some white folk, too. Sure. Being from West Virginia, I know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is why I love co-ops. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear you talk about it. You, you talk about it much better than I do. I like the way you talk about it. Oh, no, I like the way, <laughs> I like the way you talk. So where are you in the process of creating this co-op? So we actually formed the legal entity for the co-op about four years ago. And um, we have an interim board of directors. We have about 225 member owners at this point. Uh, But we're doing two things, and this is what makes our project complicated. We're starting a co-op, but we're also building a new building that is going to house the co-op. And so the building itself is called the Detroit Food Commons. And so we're wearing the hat of both being the developer of the project and the initiator of the co-op. So probably we could have had the co-op open some years ago had we just decided we were going to form a co-op and go out and lease space in a building. But we decided we wanted a brand-new building that our organization owns, that we can have, again, long-term control over, that we own the land the building is sitting on. And so that's made the project much more complicated. So, And, frankly, we put much more energy into the, the real estate side and the building development side of it than we have into the actual co-op. And that was a mistake, frankly. Oh. If I were to be able to go back in time, uh, we would put much more energy into the co-op side and organizing people around the co-op than we have put into the real estate side and getting the financing and the construction documents and all those kind of things. But nevertheless, that's where we are. We didn't understand that at first. We understand it now. So we're kind of, again, wearing these two hats. So we're the lead developer on the building, and we're organizing people to become member owners of the co-op itself. So 250 members. How many members do you need? We need 1,200 by the time we open the door. 1,200? Yes. And we expect the co-op to be open sometime in late 2019. That's a projection. And, you know, many there's many factors because we're, again, building a new building and we're dealing with the city government. Sometimes they're on their own timeline. But if all goes well, it will be open before 2019 is over. And so by that time, we need 1,200 members. So one of the things that we've uh, come to realize is that at this point, because the co-op is not functioning, the people who join, join based on faith to some degree, that they they hear us talking, they see our literature, they think it's a good idea, and they put down their $200 to become a member owner, which incidentally, yeah, 200 200 can be paid either one lump sum or in installment payments, six installment payments to get to that $200. But what we're going to be doing soon is putting up in uh, uh, the architect's rendering of the building on the lot where the building will be built, and it's our uh, projection that our efforts to recruit members will be uh, much easier once people see you know, that this really is happening, the building is going to be built, and it's not just uh, an abstract pipe dream. With 250 members at $200. Let's see, I've, the one in Jackson, Mississippi, I think their buy-in was $100. 200 seems to be more than most. 
Well, it's more than some, and it's less than many others, frankly. Okay. So we tried to find kind of a, a middle ground that would help us meet our financial objectives, but at the same time would make this accessible to, to people. And so we thought $200, if we were looking at it only in terms of what we need members to pay to meet our financial objective, we would have charged more. But we wanted to make this accessible. So a couple things we did. One is we have the installment plan where people can pay it in six monthly payments to make it more accessible. And then we have a fund that we call community-assisted scholarships, community-assisted empowerment scholarships, where instead of the member owner putting up $200 out of his or her pocket, they put up 100 and then we go in this pot and put up another 100 on the person's behalf. So they're still coming in at the $200 mark because the democracy is one of the hallmarks of co-ops, as you know. And so mm-hmm. this is not like a corporation where if you have lots of money, you can buy 500 shares of stock and I can only buy one. So everybody's equal, uh, but we're putting in half of that for, for low-income members in the immediate community so that there's no barrier or there's minimal barriers to joining and becoming a member owner. Fantastic. $200. Do they get anything now? Do they, are they able to buy the food from farm? No, there's two separate operations, and we have to be kind of careful about the co-mingling too, too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, the, the, the co-op is a separate entity, although the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network is initiating it. The co-op has its own board of directors, and um, although the Michigan co-op law provides for a nonprofit starting a co-op to be able to appoint up to a third of the members of the board. And so clearly we have the largest influence on this interim board, but we want the co-op to be able to stand on its own two feet. So a co-op? You know, I I should point this out to you, though, also. So for about nine years we ran a buying club, and that was really the predecessor the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network had, what we call the Ujamaa Co-op Buying Club where we operated monthly and did monthly purchasing from a major health food distributor. We discontinued that in 2016 because of some friction we had with the distributor and some um, some discrepancies related to our invoices that they weren't able to clear up for us, and we were losing money each month. We couldn't continue to lose that money due to, again, some invoicing discrepancies. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to discontinue that and just focus our energy on the Detroit People's Food Co-op. Yeah, I was thinking about a bias club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. A lot of times the co-ops come out of a buyer's yes. food co-op. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, that's essentially the case here. It's just the buyer's club in, stopped two years ago. Okay. But the energy, you know, sometimes people talk about the church. They say the church is not the building, but it's the people and the energy. So similarly, even though the Ujamaa Food Buying Club is not currently functioning, we brought forward the energy from that into this current effort. There is a Ujima co-op in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and it's artists, okay. and they came together, and they have a storefront, mm-hmm. mostly females, African-American females, mm-hmm. and they seem to be doing real well. I, I'm going to go visit them. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, that word Ujima actually is a Kiswahili word that comes to us from yeah. East Africa, and it really gained popularity in the United States because the first president of independent Tanzania, Julius Nayeri, had uh, what he called Ujima villages. Okay, And uh, these were villages that he was trying to make self-sufficient, that practiced cooperative economics. In fact, they were practicing what he called African socialism. 
And so this idea kind of resonated so that, and then of course many African Americans celebrate Kwanzaa and Ujamaa is one of the principles of Kwanzaa. So this idea of Ujamaa has become popularized in African American communities. We'll be right back with our final conversation. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, and 95.9 FM. Information is power. And that's why we're giving you some information about food cooperatives. If you take this information and put it to work, then you'll get the power. NCB is sponsoring this program whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities like Detroit, <laughs> by providing innovative <laughs> financial and related service. Okay, Mr. Malik, the seven principles of co-op, the first one says voluntary and open mission. Is that something that you all follow? Yeah, absolutely. And so, in fact, I have in my hand one of our uh, brochures, and on the back of that brochure we have the seven cooperative principles listed. So the, these are pretty pretty universal, we think, and, you know, these, these are things that we definitely support. So voluntary open membership, for sure, democratic member control. So, you know, we found that one of the things, in addition to in a society which exploits and oppresses people of color and poor whites, uh, one of the things that we think is, uh, that one of the things that happen is that people lose agency over their own community and their own lives. And so co-ops restore that because they are democratic and they give everyone a voice. And so we adhere to that as well, democratic member control. Fantastic. Um, member economic participation. You know, people have to put in something. So this is not a welfare model. This is not a model where we're going out trying to save somebody. This is more a model where we're encouraging people to work together and to bring whatever resources they have to collectively save ourselves. And there's a difference in that. Um, so... So this bringing something to the table, be it the $200 membership uh, fee or, or whatever else people, they have to, you have to have some skin in the game. Um, That's the self-help. Yes. And the, the other side of it, when there is a surplus of profit, yes. they, get the, they get the benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so all of the principles we, we adhere to, and, you know, this is for us, we're not in this to make profit. We're in this to uplift our communities, and so that's definitely one of the principles of co-ops that, you know, we have a larger concern for the upliftment of people, not just how much money can we generate. And, and in fact, probably this co-op that we're building, the social impact will be even larger than the economic impact, although those two things kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this education, training, and information was the first reason that I love co-ops, because I've taught 12 years of my life, too. Mm -hmm. And so sort of in the DNA of a co-op is constant training, yes. constant education. Yes. So, I mean, that's, and that's part of our plans as well. So as an organization, we're already doing that, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, but that will be in the DNA of the Detroit People's Food Co-op as well, both education and training about nutrition, about ways of preparing food, about how the food system functions, and also about related ideas because the food system doesn't function in isolation. It's part of every other system in society. For example, there's a relationship between the food system and transportation. There's a relationship between the food system and ecology. 
the environment. There's a relationship between the food system and land use. There's a relationship between the food system and education. So we want to make sure that people understand those tie-ins and, and as we're trying to uplift our communities in general and create justice and equity in the society in general, in all systems, we want people to understand how creating a just and equitable food system can contribute to that. You know, I raised my eyebrows when you said there's a connection between the food system and transportation. Yeah, I, I, your I, I got that there's a connection between the food system and the hospital or the medical system. Mm-hmm. You know, lack of good nutrition, food causes diseases. Sure. Okay, and uh, too often t- doctors don't go to nutrition mm-hmm. as a way of solving the problem. That's because they most of them don't know about nutrition, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but what's the connection between transportation and food system? Well, so in the city of Detroit, about forty percent of the residents don't own automobiles. And there's no robust public transportation system in Detroit. It's not like D.C. or Chicago or New York or Toronto where you can jump on an L or jump on a subway and get to various places in the city quickly. There's only a bus system, which is antiquated, often late, uh, although I'll say there have been some improvements in recent years. Uh, The buses are probably cleaner now than they used to be. Uh, They're probably somewhat safer than they used to be. But there's limited transportation options in Detroit. And so the ability to obtain high-quality food means you have to be able to get to the food. And unfortunately, the best food options uh, in the Detroit metropolitan area are outside of the city of Detroit itself. And so, again, there's a relationship between transportation and food access. If people can't get to the places where high-quality food is being sold, then what they'll probably do is what a lot of Detroiters do, and that is that they'll buy food from what we call in Detroit party stores. and Or in the East Coast, they call those bodegas, stores that are selling potato chips, mm-hmm. highly processed, packaged foods, which are not nutrient-dense. And even worse, many people are buying these foodish items from gas stations because there's gas stations all throughout the city that sell you know, items that can be eaten. I don't know if we can actually call them food. Um, but these, uh, this lack of access to high-quality food is having devastating impacts on the health of Detroiters. And so there's definitely a connection between transportation and the food system. I uh, got it clear. When you have a food desert, which you just described, what I, in D.C. is Ward 7 and, and 8, more Ward 8, and I found that the people, they have freezers. So first of the month, they go to the store and get Uber or their their guys around that would bring them back home. Jitneys. Lots of lots of food to put in the freezer. Mm-hmm. Uh, still not fresh, healthy food. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got it. I got that connection. What do you want to leave people with? And I need to, need you to give your either your web page or your phone number or email address so people can get back to you. So this is what I want to leave people with, that first of all, African-Americans have had a robust history of participating in co-ops as a way of surviving in a largely antagonistic society. And uh, I know you've interviewed Jessica Gordon-Nimhart on this show, and she's documented that history extensively in her book, Collective Courage. Sometimes those co-ops weren't always called co-ops. They might have been called mutual aid societies, but essentially they were the same thing. And so we've had this long history, but in recent history, in the what co-op cooperators called the third wave of co-ops, 
Uh, many of those co-ops were started in college towns, in more affluent communities. In fact, uh, they're the type of co-ops that some of us jokingly call the hippie, crunchy granola co-ops, and which I'm, I'm with granola myself. I eat that. But, um, but in recent times, there really hasn't been a template for how you create a successful food co-op in a predominantly low and moderate income African-American community. And so I would challenge the entire cooperative movement to really look at how we begin to stretch from college towns and more affluent communities to begin to create successful models in low and moderate income communities of color where there's even even, even greater need for co-ops mm -hmm. than there are in affluent communities. And part of what I think has to happen is that, you know, co-op P6, principle six is co-op support co-ops, and so, you know, I would challenge existing co-ops to support these efforts by African-Americans to create a network of, of, of co-ops in African-American communities. And that support might take the form of financial donations. It might take the form of providing training and technical assistance. You know, one, one of the things that we find both in our co-op and other co-ops that I'm uh, in, con in contact with throughout the country mm -hmm. being led by African-Americans is that the pool of African-Americans who are able to serve as general managers for co-ops is very, very, very small. And so as we're trying to create self-reliant communities that have agency and that hire people in the leadership that are reflective of the community that they're operating within, we realize that we have to, de we have to develop a larger pool of people with the skills in order to manage these co-ops. And so I would challenge the larger cooperative community to assist us in doing that by making donations, financial donations, uh, which, you know, is happening to some extent now, but to really increase that so that we see more justice and equity within the co-op movement. And then if people want to contact us, either for information on the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network or on the Detroit People's Food Co-op, they can check out our website, which is www.dbcfsn.org. Again, that's www. That D as in Detroit, B as in black, F, I'm sorry, C as in community, F as in food, S as in security, and N as in network, www.dbcfsn.org, or they can call our office at 313-345-3663. Again, that's 313-345-3663. You've said a lot. I really have, been, have enjoyed this conversation. If anybody out there would like to get in touch with Brother Malik, please look on their webpage, www.dbcfsn.org, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network.org. And I really want to want to work with you and see how we can get donations up to get these pool of managers. Yes. I've been more looking at how do we get more food co-ops, farmers in the cooperatives, artist co-ops. Yeah, I, I heard of a co-op of musicians where they're looking at a way where they can sort of level out the income. Musicians' incomes are up and down, and some are up and where others are down. But if they can pool their money, so people have a consistent mm. income. I just think that's phenomenal yeah, what we can do in co-op. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I, I want to work with you on Thank you. We, how we get we more managers. That. We accept that. We accept all, all right. help. Thank you, everybody out there. This is our first out in the community uh, interview. We look to do more of these. Please have a wonderful cooperative week. We'll see you next Thursday. News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM.